Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. All right, here we go. Episode number 118, Trauma, the first and last 15 minutes. So contrary to the expectations of the lay public, the truth is emergency medicine is very rarely a matter of seconds to minutes. With the exception of a few presentations, the reality is, for the most part, we really are practicing urgency medicine. As the old adage goes, only two things happen instantly in medicine, vascular things and electrical things. Today we're here to say it's high time a new item was added to this list, and that is trauma. For innumerable reasons, trauma happens instantly, but can be addressed rather slowly. Paramedic on-scene times can be lengthy, often involving huge distances or difficult extractions from twisted motor vehicle collisions. Laboratory and imaging findings can be delayed by medical, systems, and human factors. Even the most basic interventions like applying a Thomas splint or inserting a Foley catheter can cause unexpected delays. What the research is increasingly showing is that there's a golden period of intervention that can dramatically reshape your patient's outcome. We're not talking about the old golden hour. We're talking, of course, about the first 15 minutes, the golden window whose importance cannot be overstated. Today, we'll be spending much more than 15 minutes discussing this critical period in trauma care, the too good to miss quarter of an hour that can be the difference between coma and neurological recovery and TBI, uncompensated shock and perfusion pressure and hemorrhagic shock, or even life or death for your next trauma patient. It's my pleasure to have back on the show Dr. Kylie Bosman, Chief of the ED in Collingwood, Ontario, a ski resort town with a population of about 22,000. I looked it up. Now, you may remember Dr. Bosman's amazing performance on the podcast we did called Backboard and Collar Nightmares from a few years back. Welcome, Dr. Bosman, to the studio, and welcome back to EM Cases. Thank you, Anton. And back on the show for probably about the fifth time or so, none other than at Human Factors himself, trauma team leader at St. Michael's Hospital, Dr. Chris Hicks. Hey, Anton. Good to be back. And last but not least, Dr. Andrew Petrosoniak, otherwise known as Petro. Petro, I've been wanting to have you on EM cases for years now. Dr. Petrosoniak is also a trauma team leader at St. Michael's Hospital. He's a master educator and researcher in trauma and simulation. Welcome, Dr. Petrosoniak. Thanks, Anton, for having me here today. It's a pleasure. Great to be on the podcast and uh, be talking trauma for the next uh, little bit. Let's just jump right into our first case. So you get a patch in from EMS of an otherwise healthy 45-year-old pedestrian who's been struck by a car at approximately 60 kilometers an hour. They report his vitals as the following. Heart rate of 105, blood pressure of 100 on 80, respiratory rate of 25, O2 sat of 90% on a non-rebreather and a normal temp. Airway is patent, but entry is decreased to the right chest. GCS is 13, and he has a large parietal scalp hematoma. They've given 100 micrograms of fentanyl and estimate a 12-minute transfer time to your ED. So before we actually have the patient in the emergency department, Dr. Hicks, we've covered team and self-preparation on EM cases before, but you know it's so important, I think it's worth briefly going over again in the context of a potentially sick trauma patient. So let's say you've got two nurses, 
one RT, you've got this 20 something year old polytrauma coming in. You've got a few minutes to prep your team and maybe a few minutes to prep your gear and to prep yourself. So how do you go about these things, prepping your team, your gear and yourself? For the team, I think, you know, the simplest and perhaps most informal way to get everyone ready is just play the trauma game, which is, hey, here's what we know about the mechanism. What injuries do we anticipate and how will we prepare for them? It's a pretty simple question that you can direct to your team. And I think importantly, it gets the preparation out of your own head and into a sort of discussion-based format, which can be really brief prior to the patient arriving. And so that allows you to express a lot of and communicate a lot of ideas about early priorities. But it's also a two-way communication where very often I'll have team members or nurses suggest to me things that I haven't considered. For example, the number of times we discuss a case beforehand and somebody says, hey, should we get blood ready? Uh, and I've just forgotten to think of that. You know, that really can't come about unless you sort of have a, a discussion about what your anticipated injuries are and what your response is going to be. In terms of preparation, you know, it just flows from that discussion. So once you have a sense of what the potential injuries are, not only setting up your equipment, but assigning specific roles to who's going to do what. Uh, so let's say this patient has decreased air entry. You, you would not only get your equipment ready, but discuss both whom is going to be responsible for responding to that, say with a finger thoracostomy, and under what circumstances you're going to proceed with that. So you would set the criteria. If this patient arrives and they have X, Y, and Z, then it's going to be you, and this is going to be the maneuver that we're going to perform. And then for myself, um, and it's the usual stuff, have I taken a pee? Am I psychologically mm -hmm. uh, clear in the head to move forward? You know, if I'm wearing my emergency medicine hat, you know, if I get that two-minute call, I'm sending a bunch of patients up into orbit in the emergency department before I step into the trauma room for 30 or 45 minutes, right? And this means you quickly scan the board, you see if there's any emergent issues you need to deal with, if there's a bunch of things you can set in motion, like getting labs ordered, getting imaging ordered, dispoing patients, I try and do that. So I'm not walking back into something that's a complete mess. At least some things are in progress while I'm away. You need to be mindful of the fact, particularly from the emergency, the emergency medicine side of things, that you're going to have to walk back to a department. And ideally, it's not a complete disaster when you do so. All right. So those are some of the things about preparing the team, a little bit about preparing the gear and the department in general, a little bit about preparing yourself. Dr. Bosman, anything to, to add in terms of prepping? What about specifically the gear? Like in your shop, You've got one or two nurses, an RT, and you. You are set up for trauma since you see a lot of trauma are, from ski hills. How do you prep for your gear? And let's say you're in a place where you don't see a lot of trauma. How do you how do you suggest prepping for from a gear perspective? So I like the idea of sort of establishing that calm, opening that door for people to make suggestions. If, for instance, you're running through your prep and and you've forgotten blood, as as uh, as Chris pointed out. I think that role identification, okay, you're the trauma team nurse or uh, however, uh, you know, you're running and make sure that role identification is clear. And specifically for that gear, you know, we about two years ago refitted our emergency department. We literally took all the mill work out of our emergency department. So there's no cupboards at the headers and there's no, there's no things that are closed. And we've actually gone to a completely rolly cart system. And so I literally call for the trauma cart to the bedside. And inside the trauma cart is collated, labeled, easy to find equipment, which includes pelvic binders, which includes uh, the equipment that you would need for a surgical airway, the equipment you would need for chest tubes, finger thoracostomies, etc. And so I would just call for that cart to come to the bedside, recognizing, yep, 
it may be the case where you've got, you know, you're going to exhaust the resources in that cart, but at least you've got a great place to start with all your equipment at the bedside and everyone oriented to the fact that this is a trauma coming in and that we're going to need the equipment to go with it. Just with this particular case, it sounds like we've got some, you know, chest, perhaps belly injuries, uh, head injury ongoing. You know, there's also the prep for your room. Um, And so we do have a a protocol whereby we sort of prep the room. We bring the level one infusers to the bedside. We put a pelvic binder down on the stretcher such that we're not fiddling with that. We may not use it, but such that we're not fiddling with that after the patient's already been moved over to that stretcher. You know, your trauma cart to your bedside, uh, your ED ultrasound to your bedside, and maybe you're calling for, you know, other non-clinical helpers. Maybe you have a unit worker. Maybe you have some other non-clinical helpers who can act as your runners. You know, in the terrible situation where you're thinking about blood, you're going to need some extra people there on hand. And so you really want to have both your equipment at the bedside, but you also want to have that role identification. Who's the trauma team nurse? Who's the trauma team physician? And who are your helpers? From a rural trauma perspective, There's oftentimes, now I work in a department where I have half-time double coverage and half-time single coverage, but there's lots of emergency departments in this province and in this country and and worldwide, frankly, that you're not going to have those resources. And I think early on, if you are in a a smaller spot, you start needing to think about who are my call-ins. If this goes left when I was hoping it was going right, if this guy starts going south, who are my call-ins? Do I have anesthesia that might be at home? Is it snowing out? Do I need to call them earlier rather than later and say, you know what, I'll send them back home if it turns out I don't need them, but I would rather have them en route uh, if I think I'm going to need them. Those are some great practical points about calling in help if you're solo. And if you're in a shop where you don't have a trauma cart, for example, set up, that would be a great thing to discuss with your admin people. And Easy put up. together. It doesn't mean that you're using more supplies than you otherwise would. It just means they're all in the same spot and you're probably actually opening less stuff <laughs> than you would be otherwise trying to say, hey, is this the is this the kid I thought it was? No, you know what your kid is and you know where it is. Music to my ears. Preparation, preparation, preparation. So how to prep your team, your gear, and yourself. First, your team. Simply put, play the trauma game, as Dr. Hicks says. Discuss with your team, here's what we know, what do we expect, you know, run through the most likely immediate life-threatening injuries. What do we do? And discuss contingencies if those actions fail. And then finally, assign roles. So that's prepping your team. Next is prepping your gear. And in order for this to happen efficiently, it's best to have a well-organized, clearly labeled trauma cart that contains a pelvic binder, a crike kit, thoracostomy tray, etc. And when assigning roles, Talk about what gear will be required to set up to complete each specific task. After preparing your team and your gear, you need to prepare yourself. So there's mental preparation that's required. Things like visualization of whatever complex tasks you anticipate you'll need to do for this trauma patient, deep breathing to calm your nerves, and positive self-talk like something like, I got this so that you're put in the right headspace before the patient arrives. So that's preparing your team, your gear, and yourself. The other things to consider are what's going on in the rest of your ED, and consider ordering up some tests and dispoing some patients if you have time, so that your ED isn't a total disaster after you're done with your trauma patient. 
And finally, and finally, if you're a solo practitioner, consider early calling in anesthesia, surgery, peds, whoever might be able to help. All right. So the patient's arriving in your recess bay now. His vitals are pretty much the same as in the field, except that his heart rate has gone up from 105 to 110, and his GCS has dropped a bit from 13 to 12. You confirm that his airway is patent, consistent with the decreased air entry in the right chest, confirm a pneumothorax with point-of-care ultrasound, fast is positive for free fluid in Morrison's pouch, his pelvis seems mechanically stable, he has no obvious long bone fractures, and his peripheral neurologic exam is normal. So we just kind of rushed through a primary slash secondary <laughs> survey there, but just to get a Nailed general it. sense of uh, what we're dealing with. So Dr. Bosman, just generally speaking, can you run through for us, what would you do for this patient? Sure. So like, what are your priorities in a rural setting where you where you work? Um, you know, we'll get into the details of of all of these priorities in the rest of the podcast, but just to get a general sense of the sort of flow of actions that you'd be thinking about yeah. at this point. The bottom line is, is you're managing the emergent threats to life and recognizing specifically if you're in my setting quite early on in that resuscitation when your patient is outstripping perhaps your your capacity to care for that patient ongoing. And so I think these things are happening in concert. You're managing the patient in front of you, but you're also launching your your brain quite early to say, hmm, what's my end game for this patient? Do they need to get out soon? In which case, can I get one of my team members quite early on to start doing some of that clerical administrative work for my for my team, which is to secure this patient's ultimate destination, which is probably to have a chat with my with my friends down at uh, uh, at the trauma center. So catastrophic bleeding, obviously, control that circulation for my initial C's. And how are we going to do that? Well, if there's any obvious bleeding, we're putting direct pressure on it. We're probably going to bind this pelvis just to uh, to take that off. And then we very quickly need to manage that initial threat to life, which is that tension pneumothorax that uh, that's there. So I think we're quickly moving to decompress this chest. And you can decompress the chest either with a finger thoracostomy, which I think is becoming the go-to. But certainly for those who aren't comfortable with the finger thoracostomy, a large Borangia cath in the fifth uh, mid-axillary line is, is going to take that pneumothorax off your list of kills in the next five minutes and then loop back certainly to, uh, to manage that with a chest tube if need be. So I think in the, in the smaller resource center, I think the often fear from either the practitioner that doesn't see trauma each and every day, I think the fear is, well, I'm not a trauma center, so I don't have interventional radiology and I don't have surgeons on site and I don't have the neurosurgeon resident or the ortho resident. I think that does a disservice to what rural practitioners do, which is to nail that initial resuscitation. And you can nail that resuscitation by focusing on the emergent, urgent uh, threats to life, which are to really, really focus on those CABCs. So get the bleeding under control if it's if it's obvious. Bind that pelvis. Quickly start working through your ABCs. And in this patient's case, that is to ensure that you uh, reduce that uh, threat to life, which is the tension pneumo. This patient in my shop would get either a finger or a needle thoracostomy uh, right away. They would have their pelvis bound. They would immediately get a gram of TXA. I would start thinking if I have a soft blood pressure about getting some blood and 
blood products uh, up uncross-matched, and that obviously is a time-sensitive thing. And so I would start that early. And then obviously moving on through your ATLS, uh, you know, DEF, deficits, exposure, et cetera. But I do think that Rural practitioners, just as TTLs, can really do well in this in this first, you know, labor intense, if you will, golden moments of of fresh trauma, and this these golden moments don't need all the fancy quaternary care stuff. So this golden moments operate very similarly in the small centers as they do uh, certainly in the large centers, which is to focus on the basics, manage those emergent threats to life uh, ASAP. That's a great overview of a lot of what we're going to be talking about in the rest of the podcast. Dr. Hicks, in the recent EM Clinics in North America article that you and uh, Dr. Petra Soniak edited, you talked about the resequencing of the trauma resuscitation, uh, you know, kind of an extension of the mantra of resuscitate before you intubate, but applied to the trauma patient. Can you just explain for our listeners in general terms what the resequence trauma resuscitation is and the reasoning behind it? Yeah, I mean, you've you've made it kind of easy for us with this case. You've given us a guy with a pelvic, uh, a positive fast uh, who's got a soft and worsening blood pressure. People aren't going to miss, generally speaking, the fact that that patient is in is in hemorrhagic and possibly obstructive shock. Uh, I think it's worth pointing out in this case, before that patient even hit the door, you had vital signs that suggested a positive shock index, right? Their patient's heart rate was greater than the systolic blood pressure. And that tells you that that patient has a greater likelihood of uh, presenting in shock, uh, possibly occult shock. In other words, you know, it's not recognizable by any other mechanism. And that's going to be a much better predictor of the presence of a shock syndrome than things that we more typically rely on, like simple hard values for blood pressure and heart rate. And again, that's not going to be a big issue in a patient like this where you've got a positive fast and you've got a tension pneumothorax presumed. That's going to be an issue in the 85-year-old patient who doesn't have any obvious injuries but has a heart rate of 105 and a blood pressure of 100. And it's not until you get much further down that patient's workup that you realize they have a smashed spleen and are bleeding quite severely. So part of the concept of resequencing resuscitation, as Kylie already alluded to, is the notion of putting circulation ahead of airway and breathing management. And that is really meant to countervene what ATLS would strictly prescribe as an A before B before C sort of paradigm. Now, to be fair to ATLS, it's never really been intended that you are meant to manage airway before breathing, before circulation, but that's how exam questions get answered more often than not. And we have, over time, I think, inflated the notion with assess airway with the idea of the necessity to manage airway as a priority. And yeah, this patient's, you know, if they're going to be transferred, and it's almost certain that it sounds like they will be, or even just as a matter of their uh, massive resuscitation, which it sounds like they're on their way towards, they're going to need an airway at some point. The challenge is putting the brakes on that process early on and realizing that if you intubate this patient now before you decompress the pneumothorax or get blood volume on board, you're going to be dealing with a trauma arrest or peri-arrest very soon simply because of the mechanics of positive pressure ventilation plus whatever you do by way of an induction agent that's going to make that situation worse for you. So the concept of recess resequenced, and I, I do need to give a nod to Petro because this was a concept that he really nailed in the development of this paper, is the simple idea that you need to A, recognize the presence of shock or occult shock early, and then focus your management on physiologic priorities. And I can work it even further back to say, 
simply that concept of focusing on physiologic priorities might mean you're not managing shock as a matter of priority. There may be other physiologic priorities present that you need to take on as your first intervention, but you're really tailoring your approach to what you think are the most severe and time-dependent injuries that you find. Some cases that might be a head injury, some cases that might be airway, some cases it might be circulation. But you really need to be uh, adaptive enough in your initial response to target your intervention to what you as the clinician as you, and what you as the team have identified as that most immediate priority and get a little bit away from the dogmatic scripted approach that ATLS would prescribe. It's very useful in detecting injuries. You know, the whole reason we have ABCDE, it's a heuristic that allows us to be systematic in the face of multiple injuries, and that's fine. But having done that assessment, then you need to sort of put your thinking cup on a little bit and think, well, what's the most immediate priority here? And how do I address that? And this is really nothing new for emergency physicians. We're used to prioritizing all the time, but it's harder than it sounds. I can think of cases where you have a patient kind of like this one who has an immediate indication for intubation, but is shocky as all hell, has a pulse, mm-hmm. but no measurable blood pressure. And it's really, really hard to put the brakes on and just, you know, bag valve mask a, pen- a patient like that or provide passive oxygenation and tell everyone to hold off while you decompress the chest, while you get blood on board. That's, that's tougher than it sounds. So the idea of resequenced trauma resuscitation is not one that uh, certainly we'll take credit for, but one that we've certainly been espousing over the last uh, year or two as we've started to think about how we can do things a little bit better. And I think most of your listeners and most of us that have been taught trauma are pretty familiar with uh, how a TLS has taught us, uh, A, then B, then C, then D, then E. Over the last 30, 40 years, this has provided a wonderful paradigm to ensure that there's standardized knowledge translation across a whole slew of providers that otherwise, you know, 30, 40 years ago, we didn't know how to take care of trauma patients. It's been borrowed a little bit from the ACLS paradigm of ABC, which has been wonderfully successful at helping people uh, resuscitate patients that are in cardiac arrest. And we've looked at this and we've kind of realized in practice that following that strictly might make sense when you can do things in parallel, meaning that the airway, breathing, and circulation are evaluated all at the same time. The problem is, is there's a bit of an unintended consequence that we might imagine that the airway gets definitively managed before the breathing and the breathing gets managed definitively, not simply evaluated before the circulation. And it's when that happens that we can potentially run into problems. And I would think that, in fact, this could definitely lead to patient harm. What do I mean by that is these patients often need immediate resuscitation when they get in, but they may not need immediate airway management. And so when we look at these sick trauma patients that come in, When I say they don't need immediate airway management, that just means that they may not need immediate airway management in the first five or 10 minutes. Nobody would disagree that the patient that's head injured, that's altered level of consciousness, that's going to be sent to another institution or needs to go to the OR, isn't going to need intubation. But by doing that intervention, by going ahead and intubating, we risk that patient's well-being if we under-resuscitate them or fail to resuscitate them. So that if we're following strictly the airway, then breathing, then circulation mantra, we might not 
resuscitate these patients. And if we look at what a CLS has done over the last 10 years, they've resequenced essentially with an emphasis on the things that work. Compressions first, circulation first, and then they deal with airway and breathing. The same thing is what we're talking about here. And so when I think about these patients, the biggest thing that we try and deal with is what is their physiologic priorities? What are the physiologic priorities that they need dealt with upon their arrival? And really, I can, I can divide it into two. The first thing is the patient that is, has massive external hemorrhage. And that's the patient that comes in with either blood pouring out of their neck from some stab wound or some, you know, massive injury to their right arm because they, they've had a brachial artery injury. And clearly we're not going to go ahead and intubate that patient right away. We're going to do what we know, all know how to do, even lay people know how to do, put some pressure on it or put a tourniquet on it. And so right there, we've shifted away from A, then B, then C, and we've moved right to C, which is a circulatory intervention of tourniquet or direct pressure. And that is the first thing that we're going to address. The other thing that will happen simultaneously is we will immediately address airway for patients that have what we would consider critical airway compromise. And so those, those patients are two. Those are the patients that have critical hypoxia or they have a dynamic airway. And so when we look at those patients, the critical hypoxia is the patient that comes in that you're like, yeah, this patient needs to be intubated, no doubt. But let's see how we can deal with uh, with a non-rebreather, see what their SATs are like, and you just can't, aren't getting anywhere. And the SATs continue to plummet. You're going to have to intervene. And so that patient is going to get intubated right away. The other patient is the patient that you don't think if you come back in two minutes, the airway is going to be there. So the patient with the stab wound through the neck or the GSW through the neck, where you're really watching the airway close up in front of you, that patient also needs to be intubated. So we're looking at the moment I see these trauma patients come in, I'm going to think about two, what are the two immediate life threats? Do they have any massive external hemorrhage? that I need to control immediately? And do they have any significant or critical airway compromise that I cannot let go of? And I'm going to manage that immediately. Then I have an opportunity to move along and look at, hey, is this patient in shock? What are the elements contributing to their shock? How can we uh, first identify what that shock is? What are the constellation of of signs, uh, bedside measures that we can use, and then address those. And maybe along the way, the patient is going to need to be intubated. But by addressing the the shock, primarily hemorrhagic and obstructive shock in these patients first, we can then safely move or more safely move to intubation, putting the patient a little bit at less risk than they would if we just immediately intubated them. So that is, in essence, somewhat of an example and an overarching approach to this resequencing concept, this idea that no longer are we going to follow the alphabet exclusively, but we're going to follow the patient's physiologic priorities. And we keep coming back to that, but it's so critical that we understand when we look at these patients, what is it that they need and what can we fix immediately?
it's all well and good for our listeners who are obviously engaged in listening to these new paradigms that are coming forth. But you also have to speak that out loud because you may be working with a team who may not be following this literature. So, you know, the ABCs serve well for the practitioner who's really anxious or really nervous or doesn't see this very often. And that's super helpful to say, whoa, where am I? ABCs. Okay, I learned the alphabet when I was three. I can still do this for my patient in front of me. But it's really important to actually vocalize that out loud. I've even started to say, you know, I'll frame the situation that this is a patient coming in who's been involved in a trauma. If they lose their vitals, this is a traumatic arrest. This patient won't need CPR. This patient needs procedures to fix the cause of that traumatic arrest, which is either, you know, obstructive shock or or hypovolemic shock secondary to massive hemorrhage. But I think it's helpful also to be able to say that out loud to your team to say, hey, listen, this is what we're dealing with. And therefore, we're not just going to rote run through ABCs because that's not going to serve our patient well. But you have to recognize that as the TTL or the TTRN, you may be the only person in the room that's thinking that way, and you need to galvanize your team on board to to join you and say, hey, listen, I recognize that there's a problem with the airway here, but the immediate threat to this patient's life and the immediate reason that they're going to have a pulseless arrest here is because we haven't managed their tension pneumothorax. And I think you do have to say that out loud, especially if you're working in a small center with folks that may or may not be podcast listeners. So with this paradigm shift to the CABC, the vast majority of patients are going to fit that paradigm very very nicely, but there are a few exceptions to that approach, the CABC. There are some situations where A will be your priority, in fact. What are the what are those situations? I just don't want our listeners to think that for every trauma patient you're thinking CABC. You know, if we get dogmatic about CABC, then we'll end up with some of the same problems that we ended up being dogmatic about the ABC. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, I guess the notion of, of resequencing is, is again, still really that. You need to focus on the most immediate physiologic priority or injury-based priority, and sometimes that's airway. To be clear, we're talking more about intubation and definitive airway management, right? Uh, there are a lot of simple, relatively non-invasive maneuvers you can do to temporize an airway early. And your listeners will be familiar with most of what those are, but don't forget, you know, just application of oxygen or suction or an oral airway, whatever it happens to be. There are lots of things you can do early that don't necessarily involve definitive airway management that might temporize the situation enough to buy you time. Um, but having said that, in the paper, we kind of break it down into two major categories where airway really should be your priority. And the first is sort of critical refractory hypoxia. So based on those early interventions, if you can improve that patient's oxygen saturation uh, above 90%, then you have a reason to act. And the second is a dynamic airway situation. So you have an airway that is approachable now, but in five minutes is going to be a lot worse. A pending airway obstruction, an airway burn, a laryngeal injury or a neck injury with swelling, that, that's what we'd characterize as a dynamic airway. And as your listeners all know, you know, 10 minutes from now, that airway is going to be impossible, whereas now it might be capturable. So that, as you point out, applies. It just it applies to the minority of trauma. I've seen a lot of trauma patients that need intubation, but comparatively few of those trauma patients need intubation right now. Most of them can be temporized. You can take some time to prepare. You can talk about a plan. You have to vocalize what you think your actual priorities are at the time and it, where airway fits into that. But it's relatively uncommon to see a patient who hits the door needing intubation. Uh, but those situations do exist and you have to know what to look for. 
And I would also just add that in a single operator type system in a rural setting, remember that if the, you know, if you are the only person that's capable of managing that airway, think about the time lost by you moving up to the head of the bed and perhaps taking you away from other life-saving procedures that the patient may require. Um, and so those are all sort of the dance of trauma, if you will, in a, in a lower resource center that need to be thought through. By doing this, what am I not doing? And, and I think that's, that's part of your thinking. And that's true even in a, in a big trauma team environment, right? If you've devoted a bunch of resources and a bunch of nursing time towards yep. drawing up drugs and you've got a couple of people at the head of the bed and you've paused everything else because now we're, we're intubating, there's still an opportunity cost there. Um, so it's, I would say it's probably is more true in a, in a rural setting. That's true. But this just comes back to Kylie's point about the importance of vocalizing what you see as the priority because don't make the assumption everyone else sees it the same way. Everyone's going to walk into that room with their own sort of mental model of what's important. And it's important by way of articulation that you get everyone on the same page uh, with what the true priorities actually are. All right, I want to back up to sort of the initial assessment. So we've talked sort of generally about the approach here. Now let's kind of get more into details along the way. So first... Why is it really important to identify occult shock? I mean, we know someone who's in florid shock, that's usually pretty obvious, but like Dr. Hicks was alluding to a bit earlier, you could have the patient whose blood pressure is just a little bit soft and their shock index is actually a little bit off. Why is, why is it important, first of all, to identify occult shock? Like what does the literature say about, say, you know, soft blood pressure or a, a shock index that's slightly off, even in the field. What does that say about the prognosis of the patient exactly? So I really like the data out there about the single drop in the field or single drop in the trauma bay in that it really is a practical piece of information that the clinician can use right at the bedside. So as you've already alluded to, patients that have a single drop in the field have higher rates of need for intervention. They have higher rates for need for transfusion and ultimately mortality compared to those patients that never have that drop. So we cannot dismiss it. And one of the, probably the pitfalls that we often do, and I, I'm certainly guilty of this myself, we assume that a drop in the blood pressure, maybe it's the first one that we get, is a cuff problem. It's never a cuff problem. It's always a patient problem until we prove otherwise. So now I make it my practice that when I get handover from EMS, I ask, and they routinely give me the most recent blood pressure because that's what human nature does. We give what we can remember most recently. But I ask routinely, not only what is the most recent one, but what was the lowest blood pressure? Because sometimes they forget or omit it because they think that there was just a calibration problem. But I automatically assume that that's a problem with the patient and that's their, that's their manifestation of shock until they've compensated. So certainly it's something that I've added to my practice. I've found it incredibly helpful to identify in those few cases where I wouldn't have any other indicator other than that single drop in the field. So I guess that's where your EMS colleagues really, uh, you know, you really need to make sure you're getting that full report. You know, a soft blood pressure pre-hospital, you know, a systolic less than 90, a shock index greater than one. I mean, they're associated with increases in requirements for, for transfusions, the injury severity, and, and indeed mortality. 
So you have to actually really listen to that and don't don't just chalk it up to, oh, it was only once that they had that soft blood pressure. That means something. So you need to ask for that information from your EMS colleagues and you need to pay attention uh, when there's that one reading on your monitor that suggests that, you know, there's a derangement uh, and, and you got to think carefully that there's something going on here. The sooner you can get organized, you're just pulling that time zero back, whether the time zero is, you know, from your blood bank yanking your first unit of, of cells uh, out of the fridge or whether that's your time zero to cue in that you need to get TXA on board, or whether that's time zero to say, hey, listen, this patient's pretty quickly going to go down the drain and I'm two hours away from a trauma center. I want to make that call early because we know that those minutes do count. All of that's true. In addition to that, you know, every trauma needs a destination, whether you're at a trauma hospital or, or at a peripheral hospital. A lot of trauma care is where are you going next? And again, a patient who's got two gunshot wounds to the chest who's hypotensive is going to the OR and everyone is cool with that. And things tend to move pretty quickly in that circumstance. But it's, again, it's not this patient. It's the elderly patient with a mechanism that you can't really delineate. Maybe it doesn't seem as risky to you who has a positive shock index, but not a whole lot else on primary survey where you really see the momentum in the trauma room slow and people fart around a lot longer and they Mm -hmm. take longer and you're not as clear on what the next destination is. Maybe you're going to CT, but you're just kind of dragging your feet and maybe CT isn't the right destination at all, given what you've seen in the primary survey, but you just haven't picked up on it yet. You can really slow things down for lack of recognition and for lack of situation awareness, not just in terms of preparation, but in terms of destination. And so again, I think it comes back to clearly articulating the fact that, yes, this patient appears to be in shock or occult shock. Yes, that's linked to worsening outcomes, increased incidence of bleeding, increased incidence of the need for early operative intervention. But that also gets your team refocused on the need to move things along quickly as opposed to losing momentum which can be pretty detrimental in terms of outcomes as well. All right. So some of the numbers that might tweak you into the patients in occult shock are a shock index of more than one, a pre-hospital systolic blood pressure of less than 110 and then sustained and things like poorly perfused extremities. And of course, there's the mechanisms of injury. But suffice to say that there's some patients who aren't obviously in shock who are in occult shock, and you really need to pay attention to the numbers like the shock index, the systolic blood pressure over time. And there is evidence to suggest that even a a single systolic blood pressure of less than 105 is associated with, for example, a 12-fold increase in the need for immediate therapeutic intervention. Yeah, and I would just add that you just need to be careful in those special populations as well. So your your geriatric patient, you know, your patient who comes in on beta blockers, your patient who's hypertensive who runs 170 over 110 at all times, um, you got to be careful to have a higher index of suspicion, um, not just those sort of pure numbers, uh, but a higher index of suspicion uh, in those patients who may not manifest those nice numbers of a systolic less than 110 or a shock index uh, greater than one. I think mechanism gets too much credit uh, (laughs) in that discussion. In younger patients without a lot of physiologic perturbance, mechanism really doesn't mean much. We'll get a lot of calls at our trauma center for patients that have a really bad mechanism of injury. And then we'll sort of hear about the patient and the question is, well, yeah, but are they injured at all? And if the answer is no, and they have a bad mechanism, well, that doesn't really mean a whole lot. They're not injured. And the mechanism itself doesn't mean very much in terms of next steps in decision-making. The other problem with 
relying too much on mechanism is the elderly patients, as you just heard. Elderly patients can have very trivial mechanisms and have very severe injuries that occur as a result. So we both over-prioritize patients with bad mechanisms and under-prioritize particularly elderly patients with trivial mechanisms. And both of those things, I think, can lead to faulty decision-making. So when I hear mechanism alone, I'm not that impressed when you speak about the recognition of occult shock. It has to go along with the presence of injury or the presence of some sort of physiologic perturbance for me to really care much about the mechanism itself. Great point. I guess in, you know, 40 years ago when cars weren't built the way they are now, mm -hmm. mechanism was a lot more important. But if yeah. they have a nice squishy, uh, you know, airbag, it's going to slow that Delta V down. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've had cases of, you know, 20-year-old guy roll over, car getting stuck under a truck. And he walks into the department and says he feels fine. Mm -hmm. Not to give mechanism credit, which is what I just said you shouldn't do. <laughs> but I hear that story, and I think that's an not a worrisome story. You just dissipated a ton of energy by rolling your vehicle. Anytime a vehicle rolls over multiple times, unless you're ejected from the vehicle, that is a more trivial mechanism than most people give it credit for. So again, if I hear that story, I don't really care unless they say, oh, by the way, his heart rate is 130 and his blood pressure is 80. Now I'm listening. Mm -hmm. You have to be practical. If somebody falls from seven stories, okay, sure. That's worrisome. But in and of itself, doesn't necessarily prompt you to do much apart from maybe get prepared mm -hmm. for specific injury patterns by playing the trauma game. Okay. I just want to kind of review there. You had mentioned, Dr. Bosman, the situations where the shock index might not be helpful. Sure. Like someone on beta blockers, some of the older patients. I understand there's something called an age-adjusted shock index. Can you guys tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you can you can adjust the shock index for age, and uh, the the exact number escapes me. But you can adjust it based on the patient's age. You can also do a delta shock index, and this may be also useful for geriatric patients who have a shock index that's less than one. But if it's changing sort of from the pre-hospital setting to the emergency department by more than a degree of 0.1 or 0.2, that's considered significant as well. And that necessarily hasn't been rigorously validated over time, but it's one way to circumvent the notion of a, of a shock index in a patient who might have other comorbid disease that can confound that measurement. Okay. Generally speaking, shock index is very useful for the vast majority of patients. However, you really do have to think about those patients with uncontrolled hypertension, the older patients, you might use an age-adjusted shock index, patients on beta blockers, calcium channel blockers. You really got to rethink your shock index in those cases. All right, let's move on to vascular access and fluids. What kind of vascular access do you recommend initially and when you package up the patient for transfer to a trauma center or to the OR? Specifically, is a central line necessary before transferring the patient out of your ED? You know, are two big peripheral IVs good enough? What if you can't get a peripheral line? Is an IO good enough? What's the ideal IV access? What's acceptable? What's your take on all of that? Yeah, so I think as soon as the patient rolls in from EMS, we have a number of ACPs that are working. And so oftentimes, depending on time at scene, the patients may or may not have a peripheral IV. I can say that within sort of 60 seconds, my nurses are fairly furiously, uh, you know, one on each extremity working for a peripheral IV. And I would say that shortly, you know, thereafter, within a minute, a minute and a half or so, getting the idea of whether or not, you know, peripheral access is, is happening. And if it's not, then we're pretty quickly moving to I.O., it's easy for trauma patients. Uh, it's fast. It's successful. You can get, you know, high rates of infusion. So I would say 
a couple of years ago, my go-to was tibia. I'm now doing humerus because I think your infusion rates are way better. It's easy, easy to do. And I I would say probably the preferred resuscitation site. You know, you can get uh, infusions, you know, a unit of pack cells in in probably 10 minutes or so. And they're going to reach the central circulation pretty, pretty fast. So I would say peripheral IVs if you can get them. If you can't, pretty quickly moving to IOs. And uh, there aren't any medications that you would usually give through a peripheral IV that you can't administer through an IO. In terms of central access, I think central access takes a long time. It's MD dependent, so not a great use of limited resources. But yeah, I would say peripheral IVs if your nurses can get them and get them in a, in a swift manner, but pretty quickly looking to uh, put an IO in. I will say that the IO doesn't mean that once I resuscitate that patient through my IO, that we're not then trying to get peripheral IVs. So it's not one or the other, recognizing that most scenarios you're going to want more than one access point and ability to deliver more than one fluid or medication at a time. Yeah, so with thinking about the IV versus IO, which one's better, my preference is to get large bore IV access, peripheral IV access, like Kylie and Chris have already alluded to. But if we don't have anything else, we certainly have the luxury of putting in or having enough hands on deck to put in central lines. But we often receive patients with IOs, and they that's been the method of resuscitation, and it's worked incredibly well. When, when IO goes in, it's incredibly important to recheck how well the flow rate is going because sometimes we overestimate how much we can get through them. They definitely need to be pressurized. And if they're not flowing well, then you certainly should be looking for another IO. And when, when they do start to flow, it does not mean that you're satisfied with that as your exclusive point of uh, vascular access, but rather go back and check. Maybe that vein in the arm suddenly pops out and you can actually get some venous access and then go back. Now you'll have another, you know, put in a, a 20 gauge, 18 gauge, uh, you know, a 16 gauge if you can, uh, and you'll have some much better access. So I would consider that sort of this a dynamic process where the IO is temporizing only for a matter of minutes even, and then you continue to have whoever is best at IVs. Most places it's nurses, but or maybe somebody using ultrasound and uh, go go and get uh, a peripheral line that way. Mm-hmm. And and Dr. Hicks in the in the trauma center, you've got a bunch of people. Do you have one person putting in a femoral line while while everyone else is at the head of the bed dealing with the airway and the pneumothorax and everything else? Depending on the patient, are you okay just with a couple peripheral IVs and getting the patient up to the OR? Yeah, if the patient has adequate peripheral IV access, we typically don't do more than that. It's usually not required. Different patients will have different needs. And yeah, I mean, whether or not you insert a central line cordis or a triple lumen, again, depends on, on the patient's needs. Most of the time, if you're giving volume, you're, you're putting a cordis in. Where you put it, again kind of depends. If I have the real estate around a patient's head and neck, I prefer lines above the diaphragm and will move preferentially to something like a subclavian cordis. But as you point out, there may be people up at the head of the bed doing chest tubes and airway and it can be a little bit crowded, uh, in which case the groin suffices just fine. In the era of Reboa, we may be doing more femoral arterial and venous ports of access and that's become a bit of a paradigm shift for us at our trauma center. And I think it's important to frame the conversation, as you just heard, not in terms of peripheral IV or interosseous or central line, 
the reality is, I think in a patient where you can't get anything other than an intraosseous line, IOs are good for starting transfusions. And yes, you can get blood in and you have to put it under pressure. It will take longer, but you can do it. I think so long as you're getting blood, blood products, TXA, given via an interosseous, you have to then say, okay, once things are stabilized and once my patient is resuscitated, now they need something else. And that may actually be a central line. I, I, I don't know, except under really extreme circumstances, if a patient should be shipped out only with interosseous access. I think somebody should attempt central access at some point, particularly if you're undertaking massive transfusion in a patient like that, because you are going to need other ports of access. So I, I think it's useful to frame it not as an either or, um, and that interosseous lines are great to get things started. And then you may need to move to something else thereafter. And sometimes you find once the patient's been resuscitated a bit, those peripheral lines are a little bit easier to find. Uh, or you have a little bit more time and you can break out the ultrasound, whatever it happens to be. But we have to get away from the notion that you can only pick one. Because the reality is a patient's probably going to need one and then the other or a combination of those to really make sure your ports of access are adequate. And that's the exact patient that you don't want to hop in the back of an ambulance and drive two hours with the risk that you're going to lose your one and only very difficult to obtain point of access. So that is the patient that before you're thinking about transfer that you're going to want to make sure you have plan B plus or minus plan C to make sure that you're not, you know, stranded somewhere halfway between nowhere and somewhere without ability to give uh, medications if you need to. All right. So suffice to say is ideally you want two big peripheral IVs. If you have time, a central line, preferably a cortis in a really sick patient, the location of that will depend on where most of the action is on your patient, whether that's going to be at the neck or at the groin. One pitfall, I would say, is if the only thing you can get is an IO and you need to transfer a patient for a few hours, you really need to think hard about once you've resuscitated the patient with the IO that you need some other access before the patient gets in that ambulance. So that's a little bit about vascular access. I want to talk specifically about fluids. So my understanding is that there's some evidence to suggest that not giving any crystalloid at all in a polytrauma patient is best. And that instead, we really should be concentrating on getting those blood products in ASAP for any patient in shock or occult shock. The newest ATLS guidelines actually suggest one liter of crystalloid bolus and then to move on to blood products as quickly as possible. Dr. Hicks, could you just go over for us the evidence on the ideal amount of crystalloid in the trauma patient? And then we'll talk about the situation where there's, for whatever reason, a delay to getting your blood. I think we need to remember that the patient who's actively bleeding may not yet be clinically shocked and the patient who's in shock might not be actively bleeding. And many times your job is not just to identify the presence of shock, but to identify the presence of active hemorrhage as well. Now, that's pretty obvious if you've got a femoral artery that's hosing into the outside world. But again, bear in mind, you put pressure on that, that might be a shocked patient, but bleeding is now somewhat controlled. The two scenarios are not the same. And your job in part is to manage shock, but also recognize the presence of active bleeding. The best way to figure that out to our knowledge, is still a fluid challenge of some kind. And anyone who has a transient or absent response to a volume challenge is presumed to be actively bleeding. And that paradigm, as imperfect as it is, is probably our best way to discriminate between patients that might need emergent operative care and those that don't. Now, the question then becomes, well, what do you do that volume challenge with? And both of your options, really, 
a crystalloid, we can forget about colloids, we can forget about starches, those are not relevant. Picking a crystalloid versus a blood product, both of them have upsides and downsides. Giving everyone a volume challenge with blood is going to mean that you're going to give blood to some patients who aren't actively bleeding or who don't need it. And so that's a resource issue and it's a risk issue and that can be a limitation. Versus giving crystalloid to patients, which we know worsens early coagulopathy, which worsens dilutional coagulopathy, which tends to mess with the, the patient's core body temperature, which makes that triangle of death, the coagulopathy and acidosis, worse and worse and worse. And so it's a bit of a trade-off. My belief is, and I think the evidence increasingly supports this notion, if you believe or know that a patient is bleeding, and that's their source of shock, then give them blood and blood products to correct for that. To me, it doesn't really make any sense to replace volume loss with something other than what the patient has already lost. If there's going to be a significant delay to that, we can talk about how you may titrate crystalloids, but I think the short answer is if you're going to use crystalloids in lieu of blood, be very judicious about how you use them and think of them like a volume challenge. It's a titratable sort of way of testing whether or not the patient is transient or non-responsive to a volume challenge. And you don't necessarily want to empty the tanks and pour two liters of fluid into that patient because you lose a lot of your discriminatory value in terms of what that volume challenge is doing for you in determining transient versus non-response. So ATLS does give you room for that in what they recommend. They do say consider early use of blood products. Uh, and I think that's probably enough wiggle room to say you don't, you don't dogmatically have to subscribe to the notion of a liter of crystalloid followed by blood. That may be recommended in some circumstances. It speaks to the trade-off that we just discussed. But in other circumstances, yeah, if you've got a patient with a smashed pelvis who's got a positive fast and who's bleeding two liters out their eyeball, give that patient blood. There's really no reason not to as your first line of volume resuscitation. And I think if there's going to be a delay, uh, this gets back to a little bit of the the hows of how blood comes to your trauma bay. I think before time zero, you and your department need to look at how blood comes from your blood bank up to your trauma bay or your resuscitation bay or wherever it is that you're practicing. We actually looked at this in our place and we recognized that our blood is being delayed because blood bank can't release it without a unique identifying number. Well, our re registration clerks were waiting till we got the wallet out of the back pocket. We got the health card. We registered the patient. So have a look and see what your what your barriers are. So, you know, in our trauma patients, we register everyone as a Jane or a John Doe, which basically gives them a unique identifier at time 0.1 second as they walk through the door. Sometimes even with the EMS patch, we're creating a Jane or a John Doe chart, which ensures that if early on in my resuscitation, i.e. that shock index is suspicious, they're hosing out of their femoral artery or their eyeball, as uh, Chris uh, mentions, then then the time to get that blood is not an administrative issue. Uh, it's rather a thaw and someone to run it from blood bank to, you know, the bedside. So I do think that there are some of those nuances of, uh, of planning and preparation that are important to make sure that if you're following, you know, a small fluid challenge and you're quickly thinking this patient needs blood, that at least you have done the, the prep work that that blood can be available to your patient as soon as possible. All right. That's a Great little admin and preparation point. That's the chief in me talking. Yeah. <laughs> so important. So really, we're talking about two different kinds of patients. We're talking about the patient who's obviously bleeding out. And in those cases, we just want blood, 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 and you 
get the blood in as fast as you can. And if there's any delay to the blood, then you give a little bit of fluid. And we'll talk in a minute about how you might give that fluid. Then there's the patient that you're not actually sure why they're in shock. And to be honest, I, I didn't really give that much thought myself about the idea of a fluid challenge. And so using the fluid is actually diagnostic as well as hopefully therapeutic as well. Um, so giving that little fluid challenge and seeing if they do respond, that basically And for how long they respond. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That'll basically confirm that the patient, yes, is bleeding out somewhere and then you do need to get to your, your blood quickly. Let's talk a little bit about how you actually give the fluid in the situation where there is a delay to getting your blood for whatever reason. You know, you got this patient with a blood pressure of 100 over 80. Uh, Their heart rate was 105. Now it's 110. It's going up. You've done your fast. You know they're bleeding. You know they need blood. But for whatever reason, there's, there's a delay to getting the blood. Let's say it's 10 minutes. Let's say it's 20 minutes. How do you give fluid in that situation? So don't put it in a mini bag and don't run it in over an hour. You want to put it on a pressure. uh, You want to give it in a swift fashion. And you probably want to give aliquots 250 cc's at a time and then watch for your response and then see what type of response you have. Is it sustained? Is it nothing? In which case you're barking up the wrong tree and you probably need to look for other sources or or causes of, of shock. But put it in quickly. So whether that's a pressure bag or whether that's you squeezing the bag and see what the response is. All right. So tiny little aliquots, 250 cc's under pressure, and then frequent reassessments to see if they're actually responding. Yeah. And I would, I would really tighten up the criteria for what you mean by a delay and what your trigger would be for pulling out crystalloids, right? The patient you just described, I wouldn't give them anything. If you're waiting for blood, I'd wait for blood. The questions I'd want to answer kind of come back to what we were talking about in the primary survey. Are they, are they peripherally shut down or not? Do they have adequate peripheral pulses or not? In the absence of a head injury, do they seem to be mentating or not? And with the vital signs that you described, I wouldn't give any crystalloid to this patient. If you've already asked for blood and you're waiting for that, I think it's permissible to wait. Now, what the specific triggers should be for when you would intervene are still a matter of debate, and there are a bunch of paradigms being investigated. One of them is this concept of controlled resuscitation, uh, which would take the criteria for when to give crystalloid way, way down uh, below what most people, I think, presently would be comfortable with, which is a systolic less than 70 or the loss of peripheral pulses in blunt injury or the loss of central pulses in penetrating injury. To flip that around, if you've got a systolic blood pressure of greater than 70 or you have adequate peripheral pulses, you don't give them anything. You just ride it out until your blood products are available and then you start transfusing. Wow, that's got to take some guts there to sit in front of a patient with a blood pressure of 70 and not do anything. I think the question you have to ask yourself is, and we have these sorts of discussions all the time, if you're just looking at that patient's heart rate and blood pressure and you're giving crystalloids, or even for that matter, if you're giving blood, this still is a bit of a conundrum. I'd have to ask, what, are you, what endpoint are you resuscitating to? How do you know if you've given enough? Over time, yes, you can follow urine output. Yes, you can follow lactate and base deficit and so on. But in that early stage of resuscitation, what exactly are you targeting? If somebody has a good answer for me, I'm, I'm, I'm all ears in terms of listing. Do you want that heart rate to come down by five points, by 10 points? Do you want it to normalize? Do you want their blood pressure to normalize? It becomes in that circumstance so imprecise that if anyone has a great answer to that question, I'd love to hear it. But otherwise, in many circumstances, I kind of feel like we're giving volume resuscitation to make ourselves feel better, not necessarily towards any sort of rational resuscitation target. 
Whereas if you take a very physiologically rational cutoff, the systolic of 70 comes from somewhere. It comes from the idea that that blood pressure sort of, we believe, correlates with a diastolic blood pressure of between 30 and 40, which is really meant to be adequate to perfuse the heart, which by proxy is then going to be adequate to perfuse the brain. Or the presence or absence of peripheral pulses, which you can titrate volume response to, in other words, from absent pulses to present pulses. Well, now you have something to shoot for that makes some physiologic sense. But beyond that, I've, I've never really understood what people are targeting. And I've done this myself and I've asked myself yep. the question, what am I targeting? What, what, I've given this 500cc bolus, what sort of response do I expect? And if I don't get any sort of response, what am I going to do next? If I do get a response, how do I know that it's adequate and sufficient? We, I think in many situations, conflate the notion of pre-operative controlled resuscitation and normalizing physiology with post-operative resuscitation, where now your targets really are normalizing and restoring physiology back to a patient's baseline. When that patient goes to the OR, they get their spleen taken out, they're not bleeding anymore. Yeah. Now you can start targeting towards things that look a little bit more normal. But in the early stages, you're actually not targeting those issues at all. You're targeting adequate perfusion, not perfect, but adequate peripheral tissue perfusion. And you're trying to help that patient's ability to form a clot. Yeah. And I neither of those things have anything to do with blood pressure and heart rate, which I think is really important to bear in mind. Yeah. I mean, even in the setting of a non-trauma patient, it's very controversial as to what adequate perfusion is. And let's face it, we're eMERGE docs. The, you know, don't do something, stand there philosophy is probably not our best strength, um, but is something that we probably need to embrace in this situation. If you listen to the the permissive hypotension, you know, and it's all frankly pigs and mice and whatnot that that are, you know, there's no randomized control trials in, in human subjects. But until you plug the hole, which is bleeding, you aren't going to make any inroads. You may have a transient uh, increase in your blood pressure by giving a liter of, of crystalloid, but then you're into that, you know, triad of coagulopathy, of acidosis, of dilution. And so I think it makes you feel temporarily better, perhaps, because you see a nice flashing, you know, 110 on 80 on your monitor, uh, but for the patient in front of you, you're not doing any favors. But that's a hard change in, in our minds to make, which is, wait a second, do nothing for a moment um, and focus on all those things that are going to stop the bleeding, whether that be pressure dressings or tourniquets or hemostatic dressings or pelvic binders, you've got to, or the OR for that matter, um, you got to stop that bleed because until you stop that bleed and plug that hole, no amount of saltwater resuscitation is going to fix that patient's problem uh, for any sustained or meaningful amount of time and actually is causing harm. Yeah, so the idea of what you're going to target when you're resuscitating these patients is not that easy. Some of the data from the original permissive hypotension trials around systolics in the 60s and 70s, that, that's hard for us at the bedside to stand there and just watch, particularly for the clinician who doesn't see a lot of trauma. So I get that there might be a feeling like I need to do something. That said, that doesn't mean you should go ahead and do something, but things can start to move and you're uncertain of what the trajectory of that patient is. Maybe you're not familiar with how long a patient can sit with a systolic of 70. Maybe you think, oh, I think they're trending towards, you know, we're going to be losing a pulse soon. And you feel like there's an intervention that should be done. So oftentimes, and I get this, you want to have blood, you want to give it, you've identified the patients in hemorrhagic shock, 
and yet you don't have that. So what do you do? And we're left often with crystalloid. And while there's pretty good data to say that crystalloid is harmful, at the same time, it's hard to stand there and do nothing and not give something to help support that blood pressure. And when I think about crystalloid, I have given it in the trauma bay. I routinely turn it off when the patients come in because we can get blood fairly easily at our site, but that's not the case everywhere. So then I think about it in smaller aliquots, aliquots at 250 cc's. And what this does is it's sort of a friction cost. It allows you to stop at 250 and reevaluate what you're doing. So anytime you're doing an intervention, particularly one that might have harm, you at least have a stop point, a bit of friction to stop you and understand, okay, what is it that I'm actually targeting? So probably a good target, maybe you feel a bit more comfortable with a slightly higher systolic than 70. Okay, move it to 80 or 90. Target not the patient's baseline blood pressure. We need to be clear about that. We're not trying to get them back to their pre-morbid state, at least prior to definitive hemostasis. The other thing is, is target the patient to ensure that they are perfusing their brain properly. That's a very reasonable target compared to some number that you really don't know what it is for that particular patient. Every patient has their own sort of customized number and just blankly applying 80 or 90 or 70 as our systolic target really doesn't make a lot of sense. The elderly patient might be running around with a blood pressure of 160 all the time, and the young patient might have a blood pressure of normally 100. So to compare the two is very difficult. So target their cerebral perfusion, target their central pulse, target their perf- their peripheral perfusion in that, you know, your assessment of their skin co- color and all of that. Once we start to ask people, hey, what are you actually targeting when you give your 250 cc's of saline and then reassessing, then you suddenly allow people a bit of an easier approach to these patients. Uh, Things uh, are no longer so much like, I just got to give something, but rather, okay, what is my goal? I'm going to stop after 250 and see, hey, maybe they're now talking to me and I can actually stop. So, I mean, the the challenging part is, is that there's just no definitive target that we could bl- blankly apply to every single person. Really, you're just going to stand at the edge of the bed. You're going to look at the patient. You're going to give them 250 cc's and you're going to reassess, see if they're perking up. I can tell you what my practice is and that, you know, this aligns with what the NICE guidelines in the UK presently suggest, which is in hospital, trauma patients don't get crystalloid period. If you feel that they're bleeding, they get blood and blood products back. And if they're not bleeding and they're in shock, remember, you know, the estimated blood loss in tamponade is 50 cc's, maybe, depending on the circumstance. So it it might not necessarily be volume loss that you're dealing with. It might be some other cause of shock, and you have to pay attention to that too. In the pre-hospital setting, the guidelines are much what we discussed. And permissive hypotension is a challenging concept because it's very difficult to operationalize. What the hell does that mean? You know, how do you titrate your response? Um, how do you know that your resuscitation is adequate? This concept of controlled resuscitation, I like a little bit better. And that is, you know, more or less the concept we discussed that relates to systolic blood pressure and adequacy of end organ perfusion. And so in the pre-hospital setting, you will get these small aliquots of crystalloid uh, only if 
you are showing signs of inadequate end organ perfusion or your systolic drops less than 70. And those are the, those are the types of parameters I try to factor in. Every patient's a little bit different, but that's what I try to do in our trauma resuscitation. I don't think simply the fact that you have a delay to getting blood products is an indication for crystalloid. And uh, that concerns me sometimes. You still have to ask yourself the question, is, is perfusion adequate? And if it is, I think it's okay to sit on it for a while. I like I that answer. <laughs> I was just going to add practically end organ perfusion is a patient that's mentating our extremities that are warm, our pulses that are palpable, you know, and over the long period of time, obviously, is a lactate clearing and and uh, and urine being made. But I think that those are hard and fast and easy things to notice uh, as you're standing at the bedside. All right. So the classic old assessment of whether a patient's perfusing well, that's interesting. I mean, that's that's something that I think a lot of listeners out there might change in their practice that it's acceptable not to give anything down to a blood pressure of 70 as long as they're, they're perfusing well. Let's move on to TXA. So we've mentioned TXA. We all know giving it early in a patient who's, who's obviously bleeding. But I just want to talk about some of the nuances. You know, it's become standard to give it within three hours. But it's not really clear to me which patients should actually get TXA. You know, does, does every patient who you suspect has any internal bleeding at all get it, or just those that are showing signs of shock or occult shock? What are the specific indications for TXA? And then we'll talk about some of the contraindications. So I would say suspected internal bleeding, for sure. Uh, systolic blood pressure, less than 90, for sure. Altered level of awareness, for sure. You know, there's very few downsides to TXA. I think if you're sitting on the fence and you're not sure, I think you you got to give it. You really, really want to reduce that clot lysis early on in, in that patient's presentation. Yes for kids. Yes for adults. You know, yes for the patient with a history of DVTPE. Yes. Yeah, really similar. Um, I think the paradigm that we're trying to use is if you're thinking about giving blood products, you should give TXA as well. Because it's hard to know. I mean, if you if you know they're bleeding internally, that's one thing. But a better proxy is, well, are you planning on transfusing this patient or not? And if the answer is yes or probably, then I think TXA is indicated. There's lots of TXA literature. Uh, you know, you can read the GRASH trial, you can read MATTERS, etc. I think probably my favorite take-home about TXA, with the worldwide burden of trauma, if TXA was given to every one of those patients that had, you know, suspected internal bleeding, soft blood pressures, altered LOAs, you could save 70 to 100,000 lives per year with TXA alone. I find that to be an impressive number. Unless you're in the States, in which case Unless uh, you're in the apparently States. TXA doesn't work. <laughs> Sorry, America. All right. So when you're on the fence, give TXA. There's not much of a downside. Now, when you say not much of a downside, are there any contraindications to TXA? I mean, you had mentioned even someone who's had a, a recent DVT, you'd still give. Still give. Yeah. Still I give mean, TXA. I think the only I think the only caveat that I would point out is that TXA, you know, is not superseding your field control. So you got to get control of the bleeding, whether that be direct pressure, tourniquet, uh, you know, you got to get control of the bleeding. So TXA alone doesn't, 
negate your need to put on a pelvic binder or to take that long bone out to lengthen splint it or to put a pressure dressing on uh, with a hemostatic agent. Um, so TXA is not going to help you in those situations. Uh, you still have to focus on first principles, which is stop the bleeding. And bear in mind, you know, CRASH-2 wasn't a dose-finding study, right? They picked a convenience dose of a gram and a gram. We don't really know what the optimal dose of TXA is. In many patients, probably a lot higher than two grams total. And we'll see that with our TEG and ROTEM patients. We, we run ROTEM, which is a sort of point-of-care coagulation testing on all of our trauma patients. Uh, it's just something we do at our site. And based on that, you may detect well, in some circumstances anyway, this state of extreme hyperfibrinolysis, in which case, if we see that on our Rotem curves, we'll give more TXA. more TXA. So the answer, like when you ask how much is enough cowbell, usually the answer is more cowbell. Uh, how much TXA is adequate? Well, we, we don't really know, but uh, I, you don't need to be squeamish about two grams because in all likelihood, those patients that have a severe coagulopathy or hyperfibrinolysis probably need more than that. And there are a few studies out there exploring a change in dose, and you may actually see a two-gram bolus become a bit more standard depending on what the ongoing trials demonstrate. Yeah, so the method of administration for TXA, uh, at least in CRASH-2, it was spelled out as give one gram when you've made the decision that they fit your criteria, whatever those might be. And then the second gram gets given over eight hours as an infusion. So that's what the evidence tells us. That's how they showed a benefit and mortality in these patients. Practically speaking, I find that challenging. There's an opportunity cost to your nurses or whoever it is at your site setting up an infusion and you got a bunch of other things going on. So for me personally, um, outside of the evidence, if I see the patient, I'm going to give them a gram. I've made the decision that I think they're bleeding. Then they're in the trauma bay for 15, 20, 30 minutes. We're doing interventions and I realize, hey, you know what? They're not bleeding. Maybe their hypotension was secondary to obstructive shock. And then I'll just withhold the second gram until I see evidence of bleeding and that that's okay. If they continue to bleed or there's blood coming out of the chest tube or they have obvious pelvic hemorrhage, then that second gram, I'm not going to burden my team with setting up an infusion. I'm just going to ask them that they give it over um, just a, a bolus, just like the first one. All right. Good to know. So when in doubt, give TXA and keep your ears and eyes open for the possibility of rather than giving one gram up front, giving two grams up front, maybe the new dose. All right. Dr. Hicks, you had mentioned if you're thinking of giving blood, then give TXA. But that brings us to the question of, well, when would you be thinking of giving blood? And when would you be thinking of giving a massive transfusion protocol? So let's let's answer those two questions. First of all, when are you going to be thinking of giving blood? And if you are giving blood, how are you going to give it? And what ratio? And when are you going to activate the massive transfusion protocol? Well, our process is changing. We're activating a massive transfusion on anyone we think we're going to give blood to just because it helps people get over that cognitive hurdle of, do I need to do this? Yes, no. And as it turns out, it hastens blood delivery and it doesn't necessarily result in any further blood product waste. Um, but if you're at a shop that's not doing that, your gestalt is only going to be accurate about two thirds of the time, which means you're going to under resuscitate about a third of patients if you just eyeball it and say, yes, you need it. No, you don't need it. And it being a, an MTP type protocol. So there are scores out there that can help you. There are long and complicated scores that you can enter into your smartphone that have some predictive value, but they're cumbersome. Simpler things are just things like the shock index. If your shock index is positive, you have a strong likelihood of presenting in shock of some form and hemorrhagic shock is definitely one of those options. 
So in patients like that, consider having an MTP activated early. And if you're not in a center that does that, or you're feeling squeamish about it, at least having blood products available uh, to respond when the patient arrives. Yeah. So for activating MTP, I mean, it becomes so critical that we are precise with our timing. And it's not easy to make a prediction because people have spent time figuring out what's the best predictive rule and there isn't a great one. But we do know from a recent study, at least in one center, that for every one minute delay in getting blood, it's associated, not causal, but it's felt to be likely linked for quite closely with a 5% increase in odds of death. So for every minute, we are risking that patient's and increasing their odds of death by about 5%. So we really have to be on our game with getting blood quickly. And that starts with the clinician making the decision to get and uh, call for blood to the bedside. We know that our ability to predict MTP isn't great. We get it right about two-thirds of the time. So I will supplement it with or augment it with some scoring tools that we have. And one of them is the shock index that we've already talked about in conjunction with my feeling that this is good, patient's going to need blood. Maybe they are older, so I'll certainly have a lower a threshold to call for blood, particularly in the elderly population, because they can get sick so quickly. And I'll combine that with the mechanism of injury, those catastrophic injuries that you know, geez, there's no way they're not going to need blood based on that. And if I get any hint that they're on anticoagulants, then that's certainly going to adjust and lower my threshold. So it's a combination of things. There's no hard and fast rule. Nobody has come up with a excellent pre-hospital way of activating for blood, whether it's an MTP or simply calling for a couple of units. Uh, so we're left with combining the best available evidence, and that remains some degree of gestalt, some degree of structured scores, and some degree of those other pitfall conditions, which are I consider the elderly, the anticoagulated. Once they come into the trauma bay, again, I'll use some of that same assessment. I will then consider using the ABC score, which if your um, listeners are unfamiliar with, it's a four-element score. And the elements are a heart rate greater than 120, systolic blood pressure less than 90, a positive fast, and penetrating mechanisms. And if you have two or more of those, then it predicts the need for blood quite well. Specificity is about 80 to 90%. The problem with it is, in Canada, it wasn't validated in our setting we don't have as many rates of penetrating mechanism as they do in the States. So therefore, we automatically almost always lose the penetrating mechanism criteria. So we're left with kind of three. You can't really apply the ABC score in the pre-hospital setting if, you're, if your pre-hospital teams aren't using a FAST. So therefore, it's not super applicable. If you're unskilled with FAST, well, it's going to be a hard score to apply also. So that's why I think depending on your setting, the shock index or ABC score you can decide which one will work best for you. So some combination of the two. And there was, up until recently, we didn't really have any good head-to-head data between comparing the shock index and the ABC score. The most recent data that's come out, uh, they did compare in um, January 2018 an injury, um, a study that looked at patients that they compared the shock index uh, and its ability to predict MTP uh, versus ABC score. And... 
the sensitivity was better for shock index, meaning it was a better screening tool. So there were fewer false negatives. The sensitivity was in the, in the, in the mid-60s. The ABC score is more specific. So once you have identified, once it is a positive, meaning that the ABC score is positive greater than two, it's a better predictor of needing um, or eventually using uh, an MTP. Um, so I think a combination of, of understanding that the shock index is more sensitive and the uh, ABC score is probably more specific, they couple nicely along with your gestalt. And that's what I would use at the bedside when I'm, when I'm evaluating the patient. Uh, and I'm really looking to understand is this exclusively hemorrhagic shock and, and quickly identifying an obstructive picture. And if that's the case, then you, you, know, you can certainly call back your blood if you identify that it's all just from a tension pneumothorax. But definitely overcalling is the rule here. Your goal probably is to over-triage the need for an MTP in these patients, recognizing that the chance of withholding an, a massive transfusion uh, in someone that needs it has more harm associated with it. You know, and an MTP does not create uh, all that much more waste in terms of those those products are still refrigerated and can be sent back to the lab if they're not used. I would say in smaller centers, the downside of of starting an MTP is that it does put your you know single coverage lab technician to your exclusive uh, your exclusive MTP to the exclusion of all the other you know lab based things that are going to need to happen in your hospital at any given time. Um, so there is sort of that downside, but I would say for the for the patient in front of you, uh, there's significant upside to to uh, giving it erring on the side of caution and starting your MTP. When you talk about how to do it, you don't necessarily need to give a unit of FFP for a unit of blood and take an adult dose of platelets and chop it up into five and give that. You can catch up and that's perfectly fine. The idea is that those ratios equal out over time and over the first several hours of resuscitation. Um, so your priority may be blood and you may be at a center where you only really have blood and other stuff has to come off site and is going to take longer or is given when the patient arrives at a trauma center and that's fine. The idea is that over time you equalize those ratios out. It doesn't always have to be when we say one to one to one people I think mean you are hanging all those things at the same time and giving them all at the same time and that's not the way it has to be done. Good point. All right. So a very simple way of deciding whether or not to give blood is the shock index. And it's probably best just to order your massive transfusion protocol right up front, if you can, keeping in mind that if you're at a small center, that might shut down kind of the, the rest of things in your in your department. Or if you have time, you can look at things like the ABC score on your smartphone. But I like that really simple approach of just shock index over one, really think about giving blood and really think about ordering that massive transfusion protocol right off the bat. One of the biggest challenges about predicting massive transfusion is that all of the scoring tools, the gestalt, is all based on our traditional definition of what is a massive transfusion. 10 units in 24 hours is the, is the common one that, you know, if anybody goes out there and looks it up, that's what's, that's what's used. And that's a wonderful tool if you're a researcher, but doesn't work anywhere close at all to the clinician at the bedside. So you and me standing at the bedside, I don't care at all what 10 units in 24 hours means because that doesn't mean anything to me. I'm not sticking around for 24 hours. If I'm up 24 hours with a patient, that's a big, there's a big, there's other problems as an emergency doc. But what we're starting to realize is that with that definition, there's a survivor bias. 
First of all, you got to get 10 units in 24 hours. So if you don't ever get there, there's a bunch of patients that are super sick that die after they get eight units, and they're just automatically excluded from these studies. So we're not understanding how to resuscitate a lot of patients who just end up dying or we're under-resuscitating because we're not activating because we're using a definition that's just complete BS. So now we have a lot of researchers, in the, particularly in the States, looking to get something that is practical for us as clinicians. And this idea, perhaps some of your listeners are familiar with, the idea of resuscitation intensity, which I, first of all, I just love the term. I think it just means that, geez, I'm, I'm hard at work and I'm doing the best I can for this patient. But the concept is, is that resuscitation intensity is a patient that receives or we're measuring how many units in 30 minutes they need. And what resuscitation intensity kind of is considers a positive is four units in 30 minutes. And the nice thing about it is that it can be four units of anything. So a liter of crystalloid counts as one unit, one unit of pack cells, one unit of FFP. So this is like super practical for me at the bedside. I'm like, okay, I've hit four units in 30 or maybe even 60 minutes and they're still hypotensive, bleeding in front of me. This is a patient that if I haven't activated MTP already, I should because we do now have data that these patients have higher mortality at three hours, six hours, and 24 hours than those patients that never need four units of anything in 30 minutes or 60 minutes. So there's really some nice data starting to come out about this. And I think it's something practical that we can kind of take back to the bedside and say, all right, this is a patient that I better pour all my resources on because this patient is super sick. And if we if we don't, we're not even going to get to what the traditional definition of massive transfusion is because they're, they're going to die before they even get the 10 units. All right, time for the monster review. Let's start with before the patient arrives. First, prep your team with a team huddle, prep your gear with specific role assignments tied to the specific gear, and prepare yourself mentally. Try and tidy up your other patients before your trauma patient arrives and consider early calls for help. That's stuff to do before the patient arrives. Then when your patient actually arrives in the emergency department, with resequencing the trauma resuscitation in mind, focus on physiologic priorities rather than the classic ABCs and vocalize your assessment and plan. So you have to ask yourself, what are the immediate priorities? First, Massive external hemorrhage. Put a plug in the hole. Next, if there's critical or refractory hypoxia or a dynamic airway, manage the airway up front. But for the vast majority of trauma cases, the airway can wait while you concentrate on circulation. It's the occult shock that can really trick us. And there's five ways to assess for occult shock. One, ask EMS about the lowest blood pressure. If it was low, assume hemorrhagic shock. Or if the blood pressure is trending down, assume hemorrhagic shock. Next, if a shock index is more than 1, or the delta shock index is more than 0.1, assume occult shock. Third, feel for peripheral pulses and look for signs of poorly perfused extremities. Fourth, altered LOA in the absence of severe head injury is a sign that there might be occult shock. And finally, a patient with a positive fast with a softish blood pressure, that's probably occult shock. Now, keep in mind that you'll need to adjust your assessment for occult shock for older patients, 
those with undertreated hypertension, and those on beta blockers. So now I just want to talk about a few of the sort of key actions just to consider in your resuscitation of the really sick trauma patient in the first 15 minutes. First, there's the bilateral finger thoracostomies. There's direct pressure and or tourniquets for external bleeding. There's a pelvic binder, even if you don't have an x-ray. There's TXA that you should be giving as soon as possible in one or maybe two grams. There's blood products as soon as possible, early call to the trauma center, and vasopressors only for spinal shock. What about vascular access? Well, two large bore peripheral IVs are initially your best bet. If you can't get them, though, a humerus IO is your go-to, but be sure to check flow frequently, and once your patient is resuscitated, then try going back and getting those peripheral IVs and or a central line. Don't transfer a patient long distances with just one IO. If it fails, your patient's in big doo-doo. Now, what about volume resuscitation? Consider the following before you volume resuscitate your patient. The patient that's bleeding may not appear to be in shock, and the patient who's in shock may not be actively bleeding. Your job is to not only identify shock, but to identify active bleeding. We know that large volumes of crystalloid contribute to the trauma triangle of death, metabolic acidosis, hypothermia, and coagulation derangements. So consider a volume challenge to assess for active occult hemorrhage. 250 milliliters of crystalloid under pressure, followed by assessment of signs of perfusion. If a patient transiently responds to 250 milliliters of crystalloid, assume active occult hemorrhage. If there's no response, consider other causes of shock like obstructive or spinal. If you suspect active occult hemorrhage based on severe mechanisms, say a fall from seven stories, or you suspect active occult hemorrhage based on clinical assessment or volume challenge, start blood products ASAP. While there's fairly well-studied resuscitation targets in the first few hours of trauma resuscitation, you know, urine output, lactate clearance, base deficit, etc., there's little to guide us in the first 15 minutes of trauma resuscitation. If there's a delay to start blood transfusion in a patient presumed to have hemorrhagic shock, consider only small boluses of crystalloid, that's 250 milliliters, just enough to maintain adequate tissue perfusion, that's peripheral pulses in blunt trauma or central pulses in penetrating trauma, and maintain a systolic pressure of 70 or greater. This is what controlled resuscitation is all about, and it's recommended by our experts as a reasonable early resuscitation target. Again, keep in mind the elderly patient or the patient with uncontrolled hypertension at baseline who may require an adjustment in their BP target. Now let's talk a bit about TXA. Give TXA early. The evidence is for within three hours. But who gets TXA? Well, a simple way to think about it is if you're thinking about giving blood products, then give TXA. The optimal dose of TXA is not known. It may be closer to 2 grams rather than the 1 gram used in the CRASH-2 trial. Regardless, if you have Rotem, that'll guide your dosing for TXA. If the indication for giving TXA is the same as the indication for giving blood, then what are the indications for giving blood? Well, Gestalt alone isn't going to cut it. It's only accurate two-thirds of the time, so you can't rely only on Gestalt. Right off the bat, if the shock index is greater than 1, give blood. 
How about when to activate a massive transfusion protocol? Now, for a patient who's obviously in hemorrhagic shock, then call your massive transfusion protocol right off the bat. But there's lots of patients where it's not so obvious. In those patients, the notion of resuscitation intensity is important. And that is, if you've given four units of volume, that's an indication to activate your MTP. Well, that about wraps it up for part one of the first and last 15 minutes of trauma resuscitation. In part two, we'll discuss binding the pelvis, how resuscitation targets should change in the head injured and spinal patients, airway considerations in the trauma patient, which imaging tests are essential and adequate before transferring to a trauma center, how best to package your patient up for transfer to a trauma center, and what the future holds for trauma care. And finally, just a couple of announcements. If you weren't able to secure tickets for the February 2000 EM Cases course, it sold out really quickly, we're adding a second one-day course in June. So check the EM Cases website for details as they become available. And talking about courses, tickets for EMU, the Emergency Medicine Update Conference, which is the biggest independent EM conference in Canada, those tickets are on sale at emupdate.ca. Now, if you haven't been to EMU, or even if you have for that matter, check out the EMU 365 videos on the EM Cases website. They've got Petro's talk on massive transfusion and trauma and a whole slew of other world-class talks for your viewing pleasure. And I can't hold myself back from letting you know that there will be a new addition to the menu of EM Cases podcasts in the new year. I won't give it all away now, but I'll just tell you, it's going to feature bite-sized clinical nuggets direct from your favorite EM Cases guest experts on a variety of topics that either aren't especially well taught in residency programs or that staff docs usually have challenges with. Oh, and one last thing, save the date. The sold-out podcast camp course in October 2018 was such a huge hit that we're going to run another podcast camp course on September 21st and 22nd, 2019 in Toronto. So save those dates and check podcastcamp.org for updates. Until next time, take it easy.